Well, if you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn to Mark's Gospel, we are almost at the end of Mark chapter 12, getting close to the end of of the book itself. Our our text is a short one. It's Mark chapter 12, verses 38 to 40. And I'll ask that you stand out of reverence for the Word of God for the Scriptures this morning. Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. Give ear to the reading of God's Holy Word. It says, And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. A man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. Let's pray uh, and ask his blessing upon his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us this, this light to our feet and lamp to our path. Thank you for how you revealed uh, especially the, the way of salvation through faith in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, here in its pages. And we ask once again, as we need your help to learn anything from your word that you might Work in us by your spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, this little three-verse text in Mark chapter 12, right towards the end of the chapter, it really marks the in a, kind of the end of, of the teaching, the public teaching ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. There's the next chapter, maybe you're looking at that now or you've been looking through as we've gone through the book. And chapter 13 is one of the longer, maybe the longest extended teaching of Christ uh, that's recorded in Mark's gospel. But who is he talking to there? The disciples. He's, from here on out, his public teaching, so to speak, is very restricted and it's mainly aimed at the 12 and maybe others who are with them. But he's no longer preaching to the crowds after this. This is his last word, in a sense, to the, to the crowds in, in Mark's gospel. If you have been with us for a while, you might know that you know, Mark is 16 chapters long, and chapters 11 through 16 are basically one week or eight days. The last week of Christ's earthly ministry, uh, what we often call the Passion Week. Passion, uh, the word passion comes from a, a word that means to suffer, and so the main, the main subject in these last six chapters of Mark's gospel, it's remarkable to think how much of, of the space of Mark's gospel is devoted to this one week, the week of Christ's uh, death on the cross and his resurrection on the third day. There should be no question what the main focus of Mark's gospel is. Not that Jesus' teaching is unimportant, but his death and resurrection is primary to everything. And here in this text, in these parts of chapter 12 that we have been looking at, but here in our text Especially, we kind of see things accelerating towards the cross. Things are going to start to pick up. Things are going to start to speed up towards his betrayal and crucifixion and resurrection. And you could say, and really should say, that the cross looms large on the horizon the rest of the way. Everything that we see, really in the whole gospel, but especially from here on out, uh, we should see in light of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. Everything that we read here, uh, everything also up to this point, but everything we read from here on out should be read with the cross in mind and the resurrection in, our, in the background, in the back of our minds as we read. Now, in the, the previous verses we looked at last time, another short passage, verses 35 to 37, 
Jesus refuted or rebuked the false teaching of the scribes. His, he aimed his, his rebuke at their teaching. And what, what were they teaching that was wrong? Their view of the Christ, the Messiah, was wholly uh, inadequate. It was false. They, they taught in some way that the Christ that was to come, of course he's talking about himself, they, they taught that the Christ that was to come was just the son of David. Now, calling him the son of David wasn't wrong. The Christ was most certainly of, of the, the seed of David, of the line of David according to the flesh. The Gospels bear that out. Uh, it's a fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, God's promise to David that he would raise up his offspring after him who would reign on the throne forever. Uh, that, that, but, but God promised more than that, didn't he? Uh, the promise to David wasn't just that he would have a human son who would sit on the throne in Jerusalem. He promised David that his son would be his Lord. And so what did, J what did Jesus do in those verses that right, right before our passage today? Is He quotes Psalm 110.1. Mentioned Psalm 110 from Hebrews in, in Rob's scripture reading this morning from Hebrews 5. Well, what did David call the Messiah in Psalm 110.1? He says what? Verse 1, the Lord Yahweh says to what? My Lord, Adonai, God. The Messiah was to be God, the Son of God himself. And of course, the scribes and the Pharisees and whatnot rejected that or just didn't get that. They thought he was going to be just another earthly king, maybe a greater earthly king, but that he wasn't coming to bring salvation from sin. They thought he was coming to bring salvation from Rome and bring back the glory days of earthly Israel. Well, Jesus refuted that and, and showed from Psalm 110.1 that the Christ, that even David himself knew and taught and confessed and sang that the Christ who was to come was not just going to be his descendant according to the flesh, but would also be his Lord. David's Lord is who the Messiah was going to be. Now, here in our text, Jesus rebukes not just their teaching about the Christ. Now, Jesus kind of zeroes in on their, their false living their hypocrisy, their false ways of approaching even ministry, in a sense, as the religious leaders in, in Israel. Now Luke's, Luke's parallel account of this passage, this is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in some way. Uh, Luke's account is almost identical in length and in, and in detail to Mark's account here. It's very, very short. But in Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 23, it takes up the whole chapter. Matthew gives a lot more detail than what, than what Mark does here in our text. There in that chapter in Matthew 23, verses 1 to 39, uh, you might know that Jesus pronounced seven woes upon the scribes and Pharisees. Now, in our day, a woe, you know, we don't really have a concept of what, that, of what that is. We think woe means you're having a bad day or you're trying to stop a horse. A woe, a woe in, in the prophets, what was a woe? A woe means it was, a, it, was, it was God's pronunciation of judgment, of destruction upon those who, who were under his wrath. So for a prophet to pronounce a woe, remember Isaiah in chapter 6 when he had that vision of the Lord, you know, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filling the temple. Who did Isaiah pronounce a woe upon? Himself. Woe is me. Now we say woe is me like I had a bad day, you know. He's saying, I'm about to be destroyed. God's about to destroy me because I've seen the glory of the Lord, uh, the, you know, the king of glory, and I'm just a sinful man, a man of unclean lips. I'm surrounded by a people of unclean lips. There's no way for me to get away. 
Everywhere I go, there's sin because there's me. And everywhere I go, there's other sinners. I'm a doomed man. And what did God do? God saved him. Well, here, back in, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus himself pronounces seven woes. Now, in, in the Bible, you know, we, you don't want to read too much in the numbers, but the number seven is very often a number of completion. And so for Jesus to pronounce one woe should make people's knees knock. For Jesus to pronounce seven woes upon the scribes and Pharisees should have terrified them. It, it, it meant destruction was sure. You know, Jesus is the Savior. He's also the judge. In, in the book of Revelation, people cry out to be hidden from what? The wrath of the Lamb. The Savior is also the King, is also the judge. Now, there Jesus doesn't, doesn't uh, beat around the bush. He doesn't mince his words. He calls the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites six times. In that short chapter, he calls them blind guides. And he also calls them serpents and brood of vipers. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, had no problem rebuking uh, the hypocrites and false teachers that would try to hurt his, his sheep. He never has a hard time with his words being direct when it comes to hypocrites and false teachers. The unbelieving religious Jewish leadership there, they already wanted Jesus dead. Now, if you remember the Gospel of Mark, if you've read through it, if you've been here with us through most of our study, all the way back in chapter 3, verse 6, they wanted Jesus dead already. That's been a theme. that Their, their, their resistance to the Lord Jesus Christ is all throughout the book of Mark, they wanted him dead. Back in chapter 11, verse 18, it says there again, they wanted him destroyed. They wanted to destroy him then. So that has not gone down. Their, their desire to destroy him has probably gone nowhere but up. And his rebuke of their teaching, his rebuke of their lifestyle and quote-unquote ministry uh, probably did nothing but further enrage them and egg them on and intensify their efforts and desire to have him put to death. So you see, you know, sometimes when you read the Gospels, and uh, in the book of John, for instance, Jesus, it, there's a time, there's an hour that's supposed to come. And Jesus isn't going to be betrayed and turned over to be crucified until that hour comes. Even his brothers, according to the flesh, at times in the Gospel of John, mocked him for not going openly to Jerusalem. Well, here, it's, it's not to be disrespectful, it's almost as if he's daring them to do something. Now the time has come. Jesus isn't, isn't running away from anything. He really never was. But now the time has come, and so he, he openly, quite openly and publicly, rebukes the, the scribes, the Pharisees, these hypocrites. And that certainly played a part in their intensity of desire to have him put to death, the way that he rebukes them in front of the, the eyes of the people here. Well, the first thing we see in this short text is that Jesus tells us that we need to beware of the scribes. To beware of the scribes. In verses 38 and 39, Mark says, And in his teaching, he's still in the temple, he's still teaching the crowds. In his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Beware is a pretty strong word, isn't it? You don't usually toss that word around casually. We tend to only beware of things that we think of as actually dangerous to us, don't we? People sometimes, if they have a, a certain kind of dog, they'll put beware of dog on their fence, and a lot of times they're not kidding about that. But how many people, even inside the church, uh, are, are slow to perceive any real danger in false teaching? Or in false teachers, for that matter. 
you know, if, if, if somebody were to, to wave a gun around or a weapon of some kind, we'd be quick, most of us, to run for the hills or to, you know, do something. We'd perceive the danger when it comes to our physical bodies. We don't always perceive readily the danger when it comes to false teaching and false teachers, but it's not without reason that in Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Matthew 7, 15 to 16, Jesus gives a very similar warning here uh, to what he does here. It says, beware, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits or grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. This has to be wearing. And what are they wearing? They don't look like wolves, right? It would be hard for a wolf to sneak up on sheep when he's just looking like himself. He dresses like another sheep. False prophets, anybody who falsely claims to speak for God, they don't come up to you with a sign around their necks with false prophet written on it for all to see. They don't come with a name tag identifying themselves as false prophets, although some do walk around our town wearing name tags, don't they? Uh, Jesus describes them as what? Ravenous wolves. They're not just wolves. That's dangerous enough. A hungry wolf is even worse. And he says these wolves are camouflaged in sheep's clothing. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, in a sense, you don't recognize a prophet by his suit, but by his fruit. By the fruit of the person's life and the fruit of their teaching. Our Lord would have you and I to be on the lookout so to speak, for false teachers, false shepherds. We are to keep an eye out for them. That's a lesson that many of God's people in our day and probably every time have still been very slow to learn, to be on the lookout for such things. You would never knowingly eat or drink poison, would you? You'd, you'd, you wouldn't look for food uh, in a place where poison would be stored, and yet how many willingly eat or ingest far worse poisons to their soul, false teachings, Unbiblical teachings that poison the soul and lead many astray. Now, what was it about the scribes in this, in this particular case that Jesus warned the people about here when it came to their lifestyle and their way of doing ministry? First thing he says to them is that they saw their, their position, their religious authority in some ways, as a means of gaining prestige or privilege. They, li they live to see, what's the saying we say, some people like to see and be seen kind of thing. That's kind of what they were about. They wanted to be seen by others. They wanted to be esteemed highly uh, of them. Jesus says in verses 38 to 39, they, they like to walk around in long robes. In other words, they, they, wanted, people to, they wanted to stand out. They wanted people to notice them uh, as being the scribes and to recognize them for what they were. They liked greetings in the marketplaces. This isn't just... You know, uh, like here in this little town of Ramona, when I go to the grocery store, somebody might recognize me, uh, famous, famous pastor, right? And say, hey, pastor, you know, that's not what he's talking about. Hey, you preach to tens of people every Sunday. You know, that's, 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 not, that's not what Jesus is saying, right? He's not saying, you know, he's not saying a real pastor should sneak around. You know, a real pastor should be, you know, going incognito to the grocery store so nobody possibly says hi. The worst thing you could say is hi to a pastor in town, right? Um, no, he's, he's saying that they like greetings. They wanted to be, to be looked up to. That was the point. And they wanted to have what? The best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feasts. They, they wanted to be seen. They wanted to be looked up to and revered. That's what they saw ministry as an opportunity 
4. In other words, pride and vanity, ambition, is what characterized their view of ministry and of their authority in ministry. They were about being noticed, being deferred to, being honored by other people. And here's maybe the thing. They saw other people as something to be used for their own purposes rather than people to be served. They didn't see themselves as servants of the Lord and of God's people. They, they saw other people as there for their own benefit, much like I would say many people in our government seem to think about the people of this country. Both things are wrong. We should be serving people, not thinking of ourselves as being able to use them for our own benefit. They were self-serving, self-centered. That's not ministry. And yet they, they put themselves forward as being ministers of some kind. And as if that wasn't bad enough, the scribes also saw their, quote, ministry as a means, an unjust means of, of attaining material prosperity, didn't they? What does Jesus say in verse 40? They, they did what? They devoured widows' houses. You know, if, you know, sometimes if you're, you've read the Bible for a long time, and you, you've read this phrase in, in Mark and other places, it kind of loses its punch. That should fly off the page at us. That, that should be the most stinging rebuke. What's a widow? You know, now, not all, not all widows were poor, but what does the Bible say? Pure and, pure and undefiled religion is this, that you visit widows and orphans in their distress. Most widows in our day, and especially back then, were not well off. In fact, they were often quite poor. They had no means to provide for themselves very often. And even those who might have had a large estate very often had no one watching out for them. And so along comes the scribe, and what does he do? He sees it as an opportunity for gain. He dev they devour their living, their household. You know, it's, I don't think it's an accident that the passage that follows right after this one in the verses that close this chapter, that there Jesus talks about what? A widow, a poor widow, one poor widow uh, with, what does she have? Two small copper coins, verse 42, which make a penny. That's all she had to her name. She had you know, two cents or two coins that made up one, one, one penny. And what did she do? She gave it all. Now, I don't know that, that, that Jesus there is saying, look, this is the scribes devouring her household. Uh, but I, it's not an accident that a widow comes along in the next verses and for emphasis shows how poor she was. Well, the scribes, rather than seeing the widows as people to be served, people in need, even what little they had, the scribes found ways to profit from them and take their estates, their homes from them. The scribes were so underhanded and self-serving in some cases, they looked for ways even to cheat widows out of their estates. That's not ministry, that's evil. That's something much worthy of rebuke. And it's no surprise that in Matthew's gospel that Jesus would pronounce woes upon such men. Not only that, but Jesus rebukes them for their prayers. Probably not the first thing you would expect Jesus to say. It's not an uncommon thing in the book of Isaiah. If you read through Isaiah, God rebukes Israel for their prayers. He tells them, when you raise your hands in prayer, I'm going to hide my eyes from you. Why? Because your hands are full of blood can't live like the scribes did. The scribes were a chip off the old block. These unbelieving ones, anyway. They were a chip off the old block that Isaiah dealt with hundreds of years prior to that. They prayed, what does he say? They prayed long prayers, quote, verse 44a, what? A pretense. A pretense. It was a show. Matthew 6, verses 5 through 6. This is right before where Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. 
Jesus there in those verses rebuked the hypocrites for how they prayed. Not that they shouldn't pray, but the way they prayed. This is what he says there, Matthew 6, 5 through 6. He says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now Jesus is not condemning public prayer. He's not saying when you go out to eat tomorrow, you know, don't, don't pray. You know, keep that to yourself. Pray at home where you won't bother anybody. He's not saying, hey, at church on Sunday mornings on the Lord's Day, you know, let's not have so much prayer in the service. I know some people that would love that. I know some, some churches you would think prayer is the most offensive thing in the world because it's so foreign to their worship. He's not saying that at all. He's saying when you pray, your main purpose, even in public prayer in the church, should be to be heard by God. It should be edifying, but it should be not, not to make yourselves look good. Not to make yourself seen as being more holy or whatnot. And what does Jesus say their reward is for such prayers? Their reward is that the hypocrite uh, is being seen by other people. That's it. In a sense, he's saying, you weren't praying to God in the first place. You were praying to the people around you. Well, guess what? They heard you and that's all you wanted. That's all you get. God doesn't hear and answer prayers like that, that kind of prayer is wasted breath. It doesn't really truly deserve to be called prayer at all. Verse 40, Jesus says that such hypocrites, quote, will receive the greater condemnation or judgment. Now, what does that tell you about false teachers, about the hypocrites that go under the name of, of scribe or minister or whatever names they use? Uh, the Lord sees all of it. The Lord will, in fact, judge hypocrites and false teachers in due time. It doesn't go unnoticed. Uh, no one gets away with it, so to speak, uh, in the life to come. No wonder James chapter 3, verse 1, James gives us a following warning. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach... Notice that James puts himself in there. He says we. He doesn't say you all. He says we. We who teach will be judged with, with greater strictness. They should put that on the chalkboard of every seminary classroom and every uh, such place that, that be careful what you ask for don't put yourself forward if God is not called we should be very careful about becoming teachers that's a sober warning that we should be considering carefully anybody who would put themselves forward as a teacher of God's word should weigh those words carefully well we've already said that we have to be on guard Jesus says to beware of false teachers of the scribes uh, that might be more true in our day than it was even when Jesus first spoke those words that we have to beware. But how? What do you do? How are you to beware? How are you to recognize a, a scribe, a modern-day scribe or a false teacher when you, when you see or hear one? We have to learn, you and I have to learn, to test all things. To test all things in order to beware of modern-day scribes and false teachers. John in 1 John 4, 1 says this, Beloved, do not, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. You notice what he says there, that one little word, many. In other words, you know, sometimes we act like, you know, watch out, but you really don't think there's any danger of it. You know, you think, well, he's, being, he's exaggerating the point. That, you know, chances are you'll never hear or see one. 
John says back in the first century that many had already gone out. When you read the Old Testament, you see many examples of false prophets. In fact, you see many false prophets in the Old Testament that were embraced by the unbelieving people. In fact, what did they do to the true prophets? They killed them, abused them, rejected them, called one of them the troubler of Israel, didn't want to talk to them because they never have anything good to say. You know, they, they, they always had rebukes for, for sin and things, so people don't like to hear that. They've never liked to hear that. That's not a new, a new thing. Well, how are we to test the spirits to see whether they are from God? What is, that may sound like an odd phrase to begin with, test the spirits. He's just saying, test where, where the doctrine is coming from. How do you know? Well, you test those things by the word of God. You examine everything you hear by the scriptures. Test what you hear by the word of God. Beloved, do not take your pastor's word for anything. Don't take my word for anything. Come here with your Bible open. Pay attention to what's being said and examine it by the word of God. Any pastor that would get offended by you doing that shouldn't be your pastor. Uh, that's what the Bereans in the book of Acts chapter 17 were commended for doing, isn't it? We're told to test all things and hold fast to what is good. The Bereans in Acts 17 verses 10 to 12, it, Luke writes this. He says, the brothers, the Christians, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. They wasted no time, right? Now these Jews, he says, were more noble or more noble minded than those in Thessalonica how? They received the word of God with all eagerness. And then he adds, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed not, uh, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Why were they more noble? You know, Thessalonians, read, read Paul's epistle to, to, to First and Second Thessalonians. It wasn't like they were slouches. It wasn't like they didn't enthusiastically embrace the word of God as preached to them. But, but Luke in Acts 17 says, you know, that they might have been okay, but the Bereans were even better than them. The Bereans, they not only welcomed the word of God as it was taught in their synagogue by Paul and the other, but by Paul and Silas. But as Paul was preaching, or, or, or that night, what did they do? They went to the scriptures themselves to see if what Paul was saying was true to the scriptures. And what was the result? Many of them, and, and Luke says, therefore, many of them, therefore, verse 12, believed. You get the feeling that Paul did not take it as an insult, that they checked him. That, that when Paul taught them something from the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures about Christ, that they went back and looked to see if what he said was true. And what was the result? They were called more noble-minded, and many of them believed. You know, if, if people would, would come to church to hear the gospel, that would be a good start. But if they looked at the Bible for themselves, very often what happens? God uses his word, the power of the gospel unto salvation, to convert sinners, to bring them to faith in Christ. Well, not only do you and I have to be aware about false teachers and hypocrites in our day, but we also have to watch over our own hearts with all diligence. We have to guard our own hearts from hypocrisy as well. It's, you know, it's, it's very easy to look at a text like this. It's too easy to look at, at a text like this and kind of put it at arm's length and say, well, first of all, he's talking about the scribes. We don't have scribes. I've never met a scribe. You've never met a scribe. So it's kind of under glass. We can just kind of look at it and say, okay, that's nice. 
Thanks, Jesus, for warning us. You warned them, and maybe we'll take something from that. We have modern-day scribes, even if they don't use the name. But, uh, we, you know, one of the dangers of preaching and of hearing sermons is that uh, I've done this, maybe you've done this. Have you ever heard a sermon? Maybe you're doing this now. I hope not, but I've done this. Where you hear something, and the first thing you think of is, I know somebody who needs to hear this. <laughs> oh, so-and-so, uh, they should be here this morning, you know, my friend, my relative, whoever it may be. Um, well, the first person who needs to hear it is us. Is us. Hypocrisy uh, is something that we are all tempted to do. Now, uh, any and all sin in your life is not hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy is one of those words that we throw around far too casually. It's, it's like heresy. We either don't use it at all, or we call everybody and their mother a heretic that really doesn't deserve the title. It's not something we should toss around. Everybody who sins, every Christian, every professing believer in Christ who sins, is not a heretic, they're a Christian. Every Christian sins. Uh, If you're ever somewhere and you're being told that that believers in this life can be completely free from sin, run. Because there is hypocrisy rampant wherever you're being told that. All believers sin. All believers struggle with sin. If If you're a Christian this morning and you struggle with sin, welcome to the club. Uh, Romans 7. Read Romans 7. Romans 6 says, you know, what does it say? It's about sanctification. God in Christ has broken the power of sin in your life. You are no longer, if you're a Christian, you are no longer a slave to sin. But in case we get the wrong idea, what does Paul do? Oh, by the way, read Romans 7. Why do I do what I don't want to do? Paul said that. All Christians sin. All Christians in this life struggle with sin. And so that is not, that is not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is playing the part. The word hypocrite comes from the word for those masks that you used to see. Uh, the only thing I can think of is, this is terrible, but the Three Stooges, before the show, they'd had those two masks, the one smiling and the one frowning. It was those masks. It's, it's, it's a, the hypocrite is the mask. It's someone that plays a part. It's someone who acts holy when other people are watching, but lives completely like an unbeliever when no one else is watching but God. That's a hypocrite. The scribes and Pharisees, Jesus calls them hypocrites for a reason. God sees we can't live as if God does not see it, as if God will not judge, or as if God can be fooled. God sees everything. Proverbs 4:23 says, "Keep your heart with all diligence, excuse me, vigilance. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life." The first thing we have to watch out for is our own heart. What, is, what does Jeremiah say? The heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Well, the, the Lord knows it. We don't even know our own hearts very often. So whether you're in formal gospel ministry or ever had that in mind or not, you and I must be watchful for our own motives for serving. Do we do what we do in order to be seen by others? That's what the scribes did. Do we do what we do to be perceived by others around us as being more holy? Do we do our good works before men in order to be seen by them? Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Uh, Are we always looking for an angle for self-promotion or even financial gain? Such things are found Even in the church, there are pastors who are always looking for an angle. There are ones who are always self-promoting. It should not be the case. You and I should surely emulate the humility of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. This is what Paul writes. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Then he says, think about this, who though he was in the form of God, 
although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Someone in the form of God taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The way to glory is the way of humility and service. The glory is later. We look forward to a weight of glory that we can't even comprehend. But that's later. The cross comes first and then the crown and then, and then glory. The scribes, I, I mentioned earlier on that we should keep the cross in mind as we read this passage. The scribes, Jesus says, like to walk around in long robes. Well, Jesus was clothed with a purple cloak and a crown of thorns. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the one they were supposed to point to and serve, didn't walk around in long robes. He walked around being mocked in a purple cloak and put a crown of thorns on his head, Mark 15, 17. The scribes, they liked the greetings in the marketplaces. Jesus, the king of the Jews, the king of kings, heard soldiers mocking him and crowds yelling, crucify him in Mark chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. Twice the crowds say, crucify him, their king. The scribes liked the best seats in the places of honor. Jesus was willingly nailed to a cross for our salvation, a place of shame and pain and death. The scribes devoured widows' houses. What does 2 Corinthians 8 9 say? That Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became what? Poor, that you by his poverty might become rich. You know, the more that we understand the riches that we have in Christ, the less we'll be looking after anyone else's estate or devouring widows' houses. The Lord Jesus Christ is our model for ministry. Whether you be a pastor or someone working behind the scenes or bringing someone a meal, whatever the case may be, the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Lord of glory. What did he do? He humbled himself and laid down his life to save sinners like us. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We have every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Paul tells us. In heaven, no one's going to be thinking about what material things you had here or didn't have because of serving the name of Christ. We will have a weight of glory that we can't even comprehend all because of what Christ has done in laying aside his glory for a time for our salvation. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it even in includes these warnings that we have here in, in Mark's gospel that we are to be on the watch out, the, the lookout, to beware of scribes and modern day scribes and false teachers. We pray that you would guard your church, that you would give us grace uh, at this particular church as well, that you would raise up uh, godly qualified gifted elders here to help oversee, to keep uh, the teaching and preaching here in this church true to your word, that you would give us uh, under shepherds, and, and sheepdogs here at the church to, to guard your people and to keep us in the way of, of your truth. We pray for ourselves that you would guard our hearts from hypocrisy, that you would give us grace. Forgive us for the ways that we have at times lived uh, when no one was looking in a way that's not fitting uh, as for those who are called by the name of Christ. When you see all things, give us, forgive us for our sins, forgive us for our 
uh, duplicitous ways and give us grace, the grace of humility and the grace to, to live every day as those who are under the watchful care of our Heavenly Father. That you see all things. Give us grace to live uh, before you in a way that's pleasing in your sight, to seek to please you in all things and to edify each other, that we might uh, be more like Christ, your Son, our Lord, who, though he was rich, uh, became poor for our sakes, that we might have all the riches uh, in, in heaven in him. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.